Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let us know what you think about Powering America's Future. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, takes us to the edge of the world to observe how drilling for oil is affecting both the Arctic and the Amazon. The proposed plan by the Ecuadorian government to drill in the most biologically diverse place on the planet would be about 10 days worth of oil. Is that worth it? Our vast oceans are still a large mystery. But we're beginning to understand the huge role they play in changing the climate here on land. The ocean is Earth's great thermoregulator. Holds heat, releases it slowly. Holds cold, releases it gradually. The ocean holds the planet steady. Protecting the world's final frontiers. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Human activity has touched every corner of the Earth. The Arctic, the Amazon, the bottom of the deep blue sea. Places you and I will most likely never visit and can hardly even imagine. Yet oil drilling and industrial fishing are changing even these places. And changes there are impacting us at home as well. It's a small world. Let's start at the ocean's edge. Looking out at the vast expanse in front of us, we think we know what we're seeing. But just below this wavy surface is a world as foreign as any distant planet. What exactly is down there? And how are fishing practices and a changing climate impacting fish, kelp, coral, and the water itself? Sylvia Earle is a scientist, explorer, teacher, and passionate advocate for the oceans. In 1990, Earl became the first woman to be appointed chief scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Here's Greg Dalton in conversation with ocean explorer extraordinaire, Sylvia Earle. Sylvia Earle, what were the oceans like 60 years ago when you first explored their wonders? Well, I tell people sometimes that I come from a different planet. <laughs> and they say, well, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> we, thought, we thought about that. Um, but it was a different planet. Although from the surface, the ocean looks pretty much the same today as it did half a century ago. Under the surface, much has changed. In that time, 90% of many of the big fish have been extracted from the sea. The, the natural systems cannot replenish at the rate that we're extracting. So that's one thing coral reefs and kelp forests, their decline globally is on the order of about half. We have seen an avalanche of debris like plastics enter the ocean. I come from the pre-plasticozoic. <laughs> no plastic bags, no Ziplocs. 
we should look at the mirror and say, well, what are we thinking? When we just throw things away, there is no away. The ocean is, by and large, the away, where a lot of the stuff that we toss eventually winds up. Uh, Both the things you can see, the tangible things, but also the things you cannot see, the chemical changes in the ocean itself. We're witnesses, all of us are, to the most extraordinary time in all of human history, at least. And if you like to breathe, you'll listen up. (laughs) Uh, More than half of the oxygen in the atmosphere is generated by little green guys out there in the ocean. They also take up a lot of carbon, which is very relevant to the climate issues that we're here to talk about, in part. 97% of Earth's water is ocean. Only 3% of Earth's water is what we call fresh water, And most of that is locked up in polar ice, most of it in Antarctica. So you care about the ocean, you care about living, it kind of connects. Tell us a little bit about your awakening and wonder to the natural world. You were kind of what we would today call a free-range kid running around (laughs) in nature. I think all kids start out as explorers asking questions. How do you know that? Or why is the sky blue? That's a kid question. How deep is the ocean? The fact is, we don't actually know precisely. I think I had parents who didn't discourage me from asking questions and often saying, well, let's find out. And I don't think my mom and dad ever were trying to coach me to become a scientist. They were just maybe curious themselves. And and they let me run around on my own, which was great. My brothers, too. Getting wet or, or muddy or encountering beetles and earthworms and (laughs) things of that nature. But we live in different times. I'd like to show a clip from a different time. Listen to this from Tektite. Now a team of divers will attempt to live for two weeks as quiet residents on the sea floor. Ironically, these aquanauts are not men with extraordinary physical endurance and stamina, but five young and attractive women, the world's first real-life mermaids. Their leader is a renowned scientist, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine botanist and an experienced diver. That's uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle in a clip from the 1970s on <laughs> kind of breaking into the man's world. We kind of laugh, kind of cringe there, but I'd like to know about sort of what you encountered there, some of the sexism you encountered in trying to get into research science. I responded to a notice that was on the bulletin board when I was at Harvard, and it just didn't say that women need not apply, <laughs> and some of us did. So the head of the program, James Miller, I think he had a really good marriage and he he and his mom got along really well because (laughs) when the decision had to be made, what are we going to do with these applications? They're they're well qualified. And he said, well, half the fish are female. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we could put up with a few women. And so they did. (laughs) Why not? Go for it. And everyone should become science literate, to be science savvy. What does a scientist do? You observe carefully, you report honestly, and give the evidence of what you see so that anybody else can check your results. That's what scientists do. I get asked, do you believe in climate change? (laughs) And my answer is, I do not believe or disbelieve. That's not the question. The question is, why do people think that the planet is warming? Well, they've been taking the temperature of the planet, measurements. Here's the evidence. I'd like to ask you about the impact climate is having on the oceans in terms of warming, acidification. I think I should turn that question around and say, what impact is the ocean having on climate? Because the climate is driven by the ocean. The ocean is Earth's great thermoregulator. Holds heat, releases it slowly. Holds cold, releases it gradually. The ocean holds the planet steady. And, but for the ocean, How could there be clouds? It has all these forms of ice and vapor and liquid. You see it in in places like the Arctic and the Antarctic, where you have all three forms right there all the time. We're seeing more severe weather. Is that impacted by changing ocean currents, rising ocean temperatures? It's important to recognize that Earth has always been changing, but the changes generally 
are gradual, sort of occur at a stately pace. But what we're witnessing now is accelerated warming. We're accelerating the change of chemistry of the ocean with the acidification. And you should ask the question, how do you know? Why is it happening at such a pace? And then look for the causes. Look at the correlation between burning of fossil fuels, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the exhalations of methane creating this blanket, the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect means that we are capturing the sun's heat and holding it and accelerating this warming trend that is mostly captured and held in the ocean. And seawater, as it gets warmer, expands. That's part of the reason that we're seeing the increase of sea level rise. It's partly the melting of ice, but it's also the expansion. So it all sounds like really bad news. Ocean acidification, warming that is changing the climate, coastal areas, vulnerable to the increased impact of storms as sea level rises and all these things. But the good news, we can see and understand that these things are happening. So, okay, we've got these problems. Instead of saying, oh, woe is us, nothing we can do, Lucky us, we've got these seven billion brains out there. Got to be some good reason for having seven billion people. (laughs) (laughs) Let's figure it out and look for solutions. You know, cows can't figure this out. (laughs) Whales, as smart as they are, can't grasp the size of the problem and look for how do we solve this. But we can do it because we're armed with knowledge. We don't have a lot of time to figure it out. I mean... I I do think that the next decade will be really critical, the next 10 years, the most important perhaps in the next 10,000 years. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Sylvia Earle. Do you eat responsibly sustainable seafood? I don't eat fish anymore. I know too much. I really do. But when I was 12, we moved to Florida. My backyard was the Gulf of Mexico. And, well, lobsters, oysters, clams, fish of a great variety... It just seemed the thing to do, and I failed to do what I'm advising you to do. Ask questions. How old is this fish? How many of them are there? Where do they live? How far did it have to travel from the ocean to get to my plate? And what does it look like anyway? When you see it on your plate, it's just, you know, has lemon and, you know, little green stuff. (laughs) You see goldfish, but that's not a good model for the 25,000 kinds of fish, freshwater and marine that, that exist. And you can go to a restaurant or a supermarket and you see the equivalent of eagles and owls and lions and tigers and bears and snow leopards. And we just eat them. It looks good on the menu. And is it sustainable? Probably not. It's a wonderful vision. And I think if we were really conservative about how many we take instead of taking as many as we can capture and market, and if we protected big areas of the ocean where the fish were safe, protect the breeding areas, the feeding areas, respectful of the corridors over which they pass. But because we're amping up the effort to catch, we have new methods of finding that didn't exist when I was a kid. The the sonars, the new methods of outsmarting the fish (laughs) so that they have no place to hide anymore. So I think that if people really knew what it took, they might make the choice that I've made, which is just stop. What about farmed fish? I I think there's hope with smart aquaculture, closed systems, more crop per drop, as they say, with tilapia, catfish, carp, and there are probably others that are plant eaters, those handful of animals, it's not very many, that meet the requirements of growing fast, tasting good, and eat plants. I mean, you can get fish that eat fish, that eat plants, or fish that eat fish that eat fish, that eat crustaceans that eat plants. But you have to think of where does the food come from? Ironically, we're now taking a lot of fish from the sea to feed to cows and chickens and pigs. Not a very smart move. But here, it's a thing. We think of fish as free. We have an accounting base of zero when they're swimming around in the ocean. And that's false accounting. Okay, let's... uh... Go to our audience questions. We're at Climate One. We're talking with Dr. Sylvia Earle, the ocean explorer. And even maybe some of the younger ones with us might be brave. So <laughs> if you're 10, 11, 9, somewhere in there, yeah. <laughs> we may even bump you up in the line. Welcome. Um, hi, my name is Bushan. Uh, so uh, very interesting talk tonight. I think what you've 
challenged us with is intellectual honesty. I ate red snapper tonight. My daughter is a vegetarian. And when she first turned vegetarian, I asked her the question, she's 11, why are you vegetarian, right? For a parent, it's one more issue to deal with. She said, I don't want animals to die for me. So I think I would challenge the audience here tonight. You know, you can choose the path of intellectual honesty, or you can use rationalizing. I'm going to choose honesty, I hope. Thank you. No so, more red snapper. Maybe we converted one more vegetarian here tonight, Dr. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have our next question. Welcome. My question is, what policies, both in the United States and perhaps at the UN, are you spending your time to champion now that we can help support you also? Think of this. Half of the world is beyond national jurisdiction. It's called the high seas. The United Nations, early in 2015, came to a point of agreeing that they would explore having a framework of governance for the high seas that makes possible, as a next step, maybe within the next three or four or five years, establishing large areas of the ocean as protected areas. Yay! Whoa, what a concept. Here's the thing. These are the global commons, these high seas areas. Everyone, all of you, have a vested interest in keeping them safe. Protect the high seas, protect the Arctic, protect Antarctica, the planet's thermoregulator, if you will, or air conditioning system at least. So thank you for your question. Welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Claire, and in the next two years I'm going to be going to college, and my question is, what do you suggest for future marine biologists and environmental advocates to do? Go get wet. (laughs) I mean, whether it's within school or on your own time, spend time actually observing the things that that you're drawn to. And the idea of aquariums has a place for this because you have a condensed view, like a captured piece of the ocean. But there's no substitute for the big aquarium (laughs) That's the ocean itself. And, you know, be good at something. Choose something that that you really love and and become as good as you can. Maybe it's in writing, if you have a way with words, or with drawing cartoons. Jim Toomey, who's the the shark cartoonist, he loves the ocean. He's a marine scientist, but he expresses himself in a unique way by having a cartoon strip about sharks. So it may sound a little unconventional, but... Don't just, yes, learn everything you can. Take advantage of the schools that are there. Devour what your teachers are trying to stuff into your brain. (laughs) That's their job. It's your job to absorb it. But also, follow your heart. And don't let people say you can't do it because you're a girl. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a couple more questions here for Dr. Earl. Welcome. My name is Cassidy, and what was your favorite part about the ocean? I love the fact that the ocean is alive. When you're diving or swimming or whatever, you're suspended. You can stand on one finger, the water holds you up. You can just be so graceful. But the part that really attracted me to the ocean in the first place was the fact that there's life in the ocean. And it's endless. I mean, the mystery, the... There is so much out there yet to be seen that everyone can be an explorer. And even though you've been to the ocean a thousand times, and I have, you never know what you're going to find the next time. Let's have our next question. Um, The tragedy of the commons says that one person has the incentive to take as much out of the commons as they can before the next person gets it. And it seems to me that oceans are the world's biggest commons and that we have nations working uh, for their own best interest at the cost of overall interest. So do you think this is an intractable problem? And if it is not, what do you see as a solution? There are now about a dozen nations, only a dozen out of the 200 or so that exist, disproportionately extracting from the global commons right now with large fleets of nets and long lines. Some of these long lines are 40, 50 miles long with baited hooks every few feet taking from parts of the planet that until right about now have never been accessed by anybody, ever. It's hard to justify this based on need. It's based on greed. 
So I don't think it's intractable, but ignorance is probably the biggest problem facing the world today. People don't know what's happening. They don't know why it matters. Time for one last question. Is there anything that we can do to help? So what can you do to help? Walk along the beach and keep your eyes open. Think about what can make a difference and share your view. Use the power of communication that didn't exist when I was a kid, that does exist now, to inform people about what you know or what you care about. The, the most important thing that we take out of the ocean is our existence. Knowing that gives you a starting place to think about, well, what can you do to protect the natural world? Greg Dalton has been discussing the ocean in the era of climate change with Sylvia Earle. We'd like to know what you think about the future of the ocean. Join us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Seventy percent of the planet is covered in water. This includes the icy North Pole, where melting glaciers are opening up a big hole in the ice sheet and a big opportunity for commerce. Our next guests have been exploring ways to keep this international treasure from becoming a prize for countries to fight over. William Collins is director of the Climate and Ecosystem Science Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Alex Levinson is executive director of Pacific Environment, an advocacy group focused on the Arctic. Sergei Petrov is Russia's consul general in San Francisco, and Hilda Skorpin is Norway's consul general in San Francisco. Here's our conversation about the melting Arctic. Sergei Petrov, not too long ago, the Arctic was an area of um, some military activity. President Obama went there recently as the first sitting president to go to the Arctic. What do you make of the symbolism and the importance of President Obama going up there? The last thing we should do with the Arctic is to politicize it, be it foreign politics or internal politics of any country, and to work seriously on the challenges we have in this region. Because this region, all the world depends on, be it climate, be it energy, be it uh, level of the world ocean. So what we should do is to put this region outside any political games and to try to deal seriously with the challenges we see there today. Hilda Scorpin, there's a new ocean at the top of the world, and people are paying more attention. You've been living there a long time, but Americans are just kind of newly discovering this place. Yeah, well, it's uh, not really a new ocean. The ocean has been there all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we hear a lot of people talking about uh, sort of a scramble for resources. We uh, don't uh, think that is the case. Most of the resources in the uh, Arctic are found on the uh, seabeds of uh, national territory of the countries on the continental shelves. So just to clarify, the further a, a country's continental shelf goes out, they can basically claim that's ours, right? That is part of the law of the sea. Mm-hmm. And that is a convention that all the Arctic uh, states, all the states bordering the Arctic, committed themselves to observe. Alex Levinson, is there a resource scramble going on in the Arctic? It is an ocean that's been there before, but it's had permanent sea ice. And the scientists are now telling us the sea ice as it recedes may be open as early. They were saying 2050, and I've seen some scientists say it could even be open by about 2020. And the kind of resource scramble you'll have there will be shipping over the top of the world, the new Panama Canal, an Alaskan politician called it, and you'll also have fishing and potentially overfishing. Sergei Petrov, you talked about not politicizing the region. In 2007, there were some divers that planted a Russian flag on the seafloor near the North Pole. Was that not a political act and a political statement? What happened? It's it's very easy. We we had two deep-sea capsules that went down 2,200 meters to the bottom of the sea at the North Pole, And yes, they did plant it um, a symbolic thing, a Russian flag there. And um, it was a symbol of uh, Russia first being able to reach the bottom of the sea at the North Pole, and second, to, as it happened on the moon, to show what our civilization can do. 
William Collins, most people will never get to the seafloor, to the Arctic. Why does the Arctic matter to people in the lower 48? How does it affect our life, our weather, etc.? Well, the Arctic is home to one of the great land ice sheets on Earth, uh, the Greenland Ice Sheet. And we know that that sheet is beginning to lose water into the ocean, which causes sea level rise. It's losing it more and more rapidly, and this is going to come home to roost on coastlines around the world. There are about 10 million square kilometers of frozen soil called permafrost left over from the last glacial maximum. And that permafrost is a mixture of ice and soil. It contains a lot of carbon. And when that region of the north thaws, it releases carbon and methane into the Earth's atmosphere. And that acts to accelerate global warming. So, Hilda Scorpin, your country's been drilling up there for a long time. Should they drill more? Should you stop drilling what you're doing now? How are you approaching this? this? Well, yes, we have been drilling uh, for 50 years now, actually. Um, we started drilling in the North Sea. We have moved uh, gradually northwards. We have um, implemented the uh, strictest environmental standards on our uh, petroleum activity of any country in the world. Flaring is uh, not allowed, and uh, already in 1991 we imposed uh, a carbon tax. I guess the unfortunate thing is that we are living in a uh, energy-starved world, and uh, we know that the uh, fossil fuel is going to be substantial part of the energy mix for years to come. Alex Levinson? An oil disaster would be the single worst danger for the Arctic. Everybody here remembers in the Gulf of Mexico the oil spill, the BP Deepwater Horizon, where for nearly three months the oil gushed out. In the Arctic, if you drill in the late summer, pack ice is beginning to close in, and then the darkness closes in and the ice closes in and you have an oil disaster, it could go on for a year. And it's under conditions with extremely delicate and fragile ecosystems that we even barely begin to understand. Sergei Petrov, drilling in the Arctic, oil and gas drilling in the Arctic, Mm. is that something Russia sees as a big promise? I think we, as as a civilization, we, we do not have a choice right now just to stop drilling. We would be short of energy, I agree with uh, Hilde. So we should do it with uh, extra caution. And um, I should mention here definitely the agreement we have for the Arctic to ensure that we, what we do in the Arctic, be it drilling, be it uh, uh, search and rescue, be it uh, transportation, uh, scientific uh, exploration, all this uh, should be within... Uh, certain very well-designed rules. Alex Levinson, isn't it inevitable that resource extraction happens in the Arctic? There's really no way to stop it. The governor of Alaska right now, Governor Walker, who's not a conservative Republican, which is what you typically expect from Alaska, he's an independent and as liberal a politician as you'll find in Alaska. When President Obama came up, he said to Obama, we need to get more natural gas into the pipeline. We need those revenues. Why do we need those revenues? Because we need to relocate our indigenous native Alaskan villages, which are being flooded because of the burning of fossil fuels. Everybody get that? (laughs) So the problem is the petrol state and the curse of oil always traps us in these kind of strange, dysfunctional decision-making. We're going to have to get off fossil fuels. And doing it in the Arctic, a place that largely is undeveloped, is the worst place to start drilling for new oil now or getting new coal. (laughs) Alex Levinson, Executive Director of Pacific Environment. Our other guests today at Climate One are Hilda Skorpin, the Consul General for Norway, Sergei Petrov, Consul General for Russia, and William Collins, Director of the Climate and Ecosystem Science Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. I'm Greg Dalton. Before we have to hand out antidepressants in the audience here, I want to um, ask you, uh, Hilda Skorpin, there are some bright spots happening in the Arctic, particularly with fish stocks. Yes, the fish stock is uh, a bright spot, and uh, that is largely due to uh, very good management. And uh, we have managed particularly the Arctic uh, cod together with uh, Russia since 1976, actually, in a joint uh, Russian-Norwegian fisheries uh, commission. Uh, That has been very, very fruitful uh, cooperation. Cooperation is... Uh, on everybody's uh, agenda. The Arctic Council has been the um, forum for two legally binding agreements. One is on uh, oil spill uh, prevention, and the other one is on search and rescue. So that is a bright spot that we have managed to keep uh, the Arctic 
a, a zone of cooperation. William Collins, bright spots in the Arctic as a scientist. Do you see any other than melting ice? Well, I, I guess there are, there are two bright spots. Our ability to measure and understand how the system is changing is constantly improving. So there's a continual investment in really understanding the system as it changes. And the second is that there really is an international spirit now of cooperation on understanding how to mitigate climate change in the Arctic. Sergei Petrov, many environmentalists are concerned about increasing militarization in the Arctic. Isn't that natural that countries like Russia and others protect their undefended borders and that military presence up there may be a good thing? If we speak about Russia, uh, Russia has the longest coast of the Arctic Ocean. And it's, it's mostly unpopulated land that is not uh, protected by any border control or anything. So it's quite natural to have some law enforcement military possibilities there that would be there when we could have some uh, challengers coming from the Arctic. But what we should do is to try to protect the Arctic from the challengers in a cooperative way, doing it together. Alex Levinson? There's really two visions of what can happen in the Arctic. One vision is nations act like they do elsewhere, and you'll have a tremendously increased shipping. You will have militarization issues. Um, you'll have greatly increased fossil fuel mining, both offshore oil and gas drilling and coal mining. Or the other vision is you treat it the way we treat Antarctica and the way we've tried to treat the moon, and you try to internationalize it and treat it as a global commons and a special, unique global heritage and separate it out from the normal rules, the way we do for Antarctica. We're talking about the Arctic at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our first question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne. I'm a climate activist with 350.org. I think of us as, as wily coyote civilization chasing the roadrunner, which is fossil fuels, and we're always chasing it. And once we get over that cliff in the cartoon, Wiley always goes, oops, and you see a little puff of smoke after he collapses at the bottom, and then there's a reset button, and all of a sudden, Wiley Coyote is chasing the roadrunner again. But climate change is a giant geological cliff that will last for maybe 100,000 years, James Hansen has said. What would it take to recognize how serious this problem is and say, oh my God, we have to stop digging up fossil fuels or we're going to go over that climate cliff and there ain't no tomorrow. Sergey Petrov, you have children, grandchildren. Do they factor into you thinking about that kind of... Yes, one, one son and one granddaughter. I would be happy to see that and uh, I'm sure that we'll, we will be able to reach that if we do it all collectively. We only can do it if we act collectively. Alex Levinson, what would it take for all of us to do more? It's a great question, and it's a hard question, and it's one that I was talking last night with my daughter about because she asked me, you know, what, what do we do? Each one of us answers it for ourselves in terms of how we structure our own life, what kind of cars we drive or don't drive, but then it needs more than that, right? It needs us to then say, you know, in what way am I going to go out there and... Um, Get involved with 350.org, a terrific organization that's new and has really been a terrific communicator of the depth of the challenge, or run for office, which I hope each of you mm -hmm. who's clapped for us here today will think about, because we actually really need, I think, to, to take back the activism in our society so that we can make the difference. We've heard a lot of uh, dark, redoomed things here today. <laughs> some opportunity, some real bright spots. What gives you hope, Sergey? We are homo sapiens. We are reasonable people, and we should <laughs> find ways out. Okay, Alex Levinson. What gives me hope is that in the U.S. we've had a very successful campaign among activists and many others to begin to really get us off coal as a major fossil fuel, and that made me think, wow, we're on the right track. Hilda Scorpin. We are more and more seeing uh, this is a win-win, mm -hmm. and that we recognize that we have to cooperate. We yeah. don't have a choice. William Collins. We can produce as much energy as we need from renewable resources. That's what gives me hope. Greg Dalton has been talking about the melting polar ice cap with William Collins from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, Alex Levinson of Pacific Environment Advocacy Group, Sergei Petrov, Russia's Consul General in San Francisco, and Hilda Skorpin, Norway's Consul General, also in San Francisco. 
free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. As melting ice opens up the Arctic, oil and gas companies have their sights on the treasures below. They've already been drilling in the far reaches of the Amazon for years where fossil fuel extraction has muddied the waters and kept cars moving back home. How cost-effective are these expensive drilling operations in a world flooded with cheap oil? And what can we consumers do to keep those fossil fuels in the ground? Here to discuss this is Lou Alstadt, a former executive vice president of Mobile Oil Company, who now advocates for the organization Move Away from Fossil Fuels. Danielle Fougere, president of As You Sow, a shareholder advocacy group. Leila Salazar-Lopez, executive director of the environmental group Amazon Watch and Renee Ortiz, a former oil minister of Ecuador and a former secretary general of OPEC. Here's Greg's conversation about drilling in the Amazon and Arctic. Lou Alstad, I'd like to begin with you. Shell made headlines recently by pulling out of the Arctic after, what, six or seven billion dollars. You spent 30 years looking for oil for mobile. When you read that, what did you see? A lot of mistakes, problems with rigs, and then they obviously picked the wrong spot to drill and had a dry hole. So that money is pretty well shot, and people are going to think really hard if a company that is as good as Shell is, they're very good at what they do, if, if they can blow it that badly, I think it's going to push things back a number of years. Was it low oil prices, regulation, you know, kayakers in Seattle? How did they play a role? The costs there are very, very high. So that's the big problem. I think the kayakers in Seattle probably got a lot of attention, probably upped the ante, and I think that kind of activism does up the ante for companies talking to their shareholders and their boards of directors. And Daniel Fujieri, tell us your take on the Arctic. I mean, really, those companies are just going to go find it somewhere else. When you have to go to far-flung regions like the Arctic or deep sea or even shale oil, the costs are increasing. And so we're asking companies Does it make sense to invest the next dollar in this type of high-cost, high-carbon resources in a world that 80% of the oil or the fossil fuels need to stay underground? What makes sense in these circumstances as global warming emerges? Should the companies be investing their money there? Should they be drilling it in the Arctic? That's a very important question. Renee Ortiz, there have been some retreats in Ecuador, your country, where Shell went in, planned to do some things, and they they retreated. Environmentalists might take a short-term victory for this, but the world is still addicted to oil, and they're going to get it somewhere. On the one hand, you have the OECD countries doing a good job. The developed economies, the developed developed democracies. They all talk about almost a flat grow on energy consumption on these developed economies, which means they are becoming extremely efficient, and that is good. However, the non-OECD countries, which are more than two-thirds of the entire world, they are climbing almost exponentially, to the extent that by 2025, 2030, the world may need production on the order of 110, 111 million barrels a day. And they're going to have to address this question. Let's ask Leila Salazar-Lopez. There's a lot of oil in the ground in Ecuador, in the Amazon. You think it should stay there, but couldn't some of that extraction help the people in the local economies there if it's done properly, if it's done well? Step back a second and look at what our global leaders, our global governments have committed to. They committed to keeping our planet under two degrees. That's two degrees Celsius warming. Two degrees Celsius. From uh, pre-industrial levels. So in order to do that, in order to keep our planet under two degrees Celsius, we must keep 80%, three quarters of fossil fuels in the ground. And we must transition to 100% renewables by 2030. The technology is available, but where's the political will? We need our global leaders, our local leaders, We, all of us, need to push for and advance renewable energy technologies 
and kick our addictions to fossil fuels. And the Arctic is one of those places we should start. The Amazon is another. Indigenous people say it's a sacred place. It's also the source of a fifth of our fresh water. A third of plants and animal species come from the Amazon. The world's largest river, the world's largest carbon sink, and the, the proposed plan by the Ecuadorian government to drill in the most biologically diverse place on the planet, the home to uncontacted indigenous people. The plan to drill there would be about 10 days worth of oil. Is that worth it? Rene Ortiz, you are former secretary general of OPEC. Do you agree that three quarters of the hydrocarbons, the oil needs to stay in the ground to meet this global commitment for stabilizing the climate? Maybe that is the number. I don't know exactly whether <laughs> the, the world community will achieve that number, but that is a number. We have seen the displacement of oil in the energy mix, taken over by natural gas, the most environmentally friendly fuel. Lou Alstadt, fracking is a common way to get natural gas now. Does the industry have a handle on the environmental impacts of fracking and the methane released in the process of fracking? I'm going to disagree with Rene on his comment on methane. Methane is by far a more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Over a 20-year period, which is the critical time that we're dealing with, it's about 86 times worse than carbon dioxide. So thinking that you're solving the problem by replacing oil with gas is just digging yourself a bigger hole. We knew it was a large, powerful greenhouse gas. What we didn't know was how much was leaking into the atmosphere. The numbers don't have to be much more than a few percent before natural gas is worse than coal in terms of being a greenhouse gas. So we actually have to control both oil and gas at the same time and reduce them both and move to renewables as quickly as we can. And we've got to create the financial incentives to move in those directions. And Daniel Fugier, you work inside companies looking at their risk and their future profits. The, the issue is these producers, the oil majors, are the highest cost producers. 75% of the oil is held by nationals. And a lot of that oil is much cheaper if you've got Saudi Arabia that can drill at $10 per barrel. Why would companies like Shell go into the Arctic and drill for $100 per barrel oil? And so these companies have to grapple with their situation. They're the highest cost producers. Every barrel is going to be high cost. So that drives the market for renewables. And if that's the case, then the need for oil reduces dramatically. And this could be like Kodak, who, you know, went under because it did not change. Rene Ortiz, electric cars, are they the future? And what are your friends at OPEC think about electric cars? Probably they're already buying them. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, not talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the sheikhs in, in the Arab countries, buying the best of the technology. But I think the world has been changing and is changing forever. I think the world is moving into a massive electrification. Massive. And that is good. Because that brings in most of the renewable energies. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of the oil industry at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Daniel Fugere, president of As You Sow, Lou Alstad, a former oil executive with Mobile Oil, Leila Salazar-Lopez from Amazon Watch, and Rene Ortiz, a former oil minister from Ecuador. Leila Salazar-Lopez, I'd like to ask you about the strategy for the environmental movement is often to attack supply, to try to keep it in the ground, to go after the companies. That didn't work so well for the war on drugs. As long as there's demand, someone's going to meet that demand. Well, it is about supply and demand, but you know we have to think beyond the short term. We are heading towards an unlivable planet if we don't make drastic change now. When I think of you know, our dependence on fossil fuels and the Amazon, I think of Chevron. I think of the legacy, the toxic legacy that this company left in the Amazon that remains to this day. This company intentionally, deliberately went into Ecuador and drilled and dumped 18 billion gallons of toxic wastewater into unlined pits. After 20 years, Ecuadorian courts ruled that this company was guilty, was liable for environmental destruction, and they face a $9.5 billion judgment. But they said they were going to 
fight it till hell freezes over. This is a company that says they use best practices, and the reality is there is no real safe way to drill in the Arctic or the Amazon. Rene Ortiz, you were oil minister in Ecuador during some of that time. Did bad things happen, and who should be responsible? In my term of office, I could assure you that we use the same technology that you use in the offshore drilling. But you had less environmental regulations at that time, and no, Ecuador okay. was less developed, and the state Today, oil company... there are enough environmental rules, and of course this, this can be improved. They are not perfect for the ongoing business that is there, because you cannot stop that business. It is an ongoing business, but you can make it more perfect. In other words, you can move from these good practices to best practices. It is ethical commitment of the oil industry to do their best. Leila Solazar-Lopez, there's something called equitable origin, and that is sort of a, a certification, the idea that, that oil can be green, mm-hmm. sort of like we have lead buildings that are certified, or fair trade coffee. There are two fields operating in Colombia that are certified. Can this oil be done responsibly with best practices for the time remaining that we're, that we're using oil? We don't think that the best in the Amazon is good enough, because Drilling in the Amazon in the most sensitive ecosystems, such as Yasuni National Park, which is one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, you know, there are some places that need to be off limits. And it's not only Yasuni that's under threat, it's the entire Ecuadorian Amazon that surrounds it. Lou Alstead, is it true that the industry doesn't have a great record raising the income levels and economic development of areas where extraction happens? A lot of the money from Nigeria goes out of the country and the locals don't benefit other than they get some pollution and maybe a few jobs. This is not only in less developed countries, it's right here. The industry tends to go through boom-bust cycles. As soon as the drilling is finished, it takes far fewer people to operate the fields and they, they go bust. And you can see it happened in, in Pennsylvania, in the western part of New York where there was older drilling. The counties that had the drilling are less well off than the neighboring counties. Example after example, drilling is not a great economic boon for the local people. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Paul Pasimino. You mentioned Chevron specifically and How do you think that will affect other companies' intentions to drill in the Arctic and the Amazon if their impunity is finally ended and Chevron is forced to pay for the damage it deliberately caused? Danielle Fugier, how do you see that case? It's been going on for years, and, you know, it's time that it be resolved and these companies move forward. From a shareholder's perspective, the bleeding needs to end, and the companies need to move forward and address real problems that we have today, which is climate change and how these companies are going to be in business in 50 years. Next question. Great. Thank you. Uh, my name is Adam Zuckerman. There's been a lot of talk about Yasuni ITT. I read that there's no plan to re-inject formation waters there's no plan to deal with an area that's almost constantly flooded. And there's also no plan really to deal with uncontacted indigenous peoples. And there's even a company, Sertek Pet, an Ecuadorian company, which is proposing to build roads there. Let's ask Leda Salazar-Lopez to get on that. Indigenous peoples have been looking after their ancestral territories for thousands of years. And they have the most to lose from any destruction or any disturbance or any increased oil expansion into their territory. So that's why... Most indigenous federations, indigenous nationalities in the southern part of Ecuador have said no to oil development, no new oil development. In the Oriente, in the northern part of the Ecuadorian Amazon, that's where there is oil development. That's where a massive reserve has already been found. That's where there are roads. There's oil infrastructure already there. That is actually where some indigenous peoples and some nationalities and organizations are saying, hey, we're already surrounded by this. We've already lost most of our forests. We've actually already lost most of our cultures. So you know what? Yeah, we want a piece of the pie. If it's going to continue, we want royalties. We want some control over it. They've lost most of their land and life and culture. So they should get a piece of the pie. And people in the Gulf of Mexico might say the same thing. A lot of people down there like the industry. They benefit from the industry. And that would be a place to continue development rather than go into the Arctic or something else. But in places where the communities are saying, no, we want our rights respected. We want our territories respected. 
not only indigenous people from the Amazon, but all across the Americas. We're building an alliance to keep fossil fuels in the ground from the Arctic to the Amazon, and that's our message. Let's go to our next audience question. I'm Martha Turner, and I'm curious to hear your perspectives on the advantages of divestment as a means for civic action versus shareholder engagement. Thank you. Danielle Fougere. The divestment movement has been very important in starting dialogues and asking important questions and in raising issues to the forefront. So divestment is extremely important. Now, shareholder engagement has brought many changes. It's important to be talking to companies. We have, for instance, gotten Exxon to tell investors in the world we are going to continue business as usual for, you know, as far as we can see into the future. All of that is important to understand how these companies are thinking. Should we invest in these? And so divestment Although it's become a loaded term, it's also just what shareholders do when they don't think a company has sustained value. You know, shareholders regularly divest from companies and buy other companies. So all of these things are incredibly important, and there are reasons to do both. Lou Alstead, have you personally divested from yes. oil stocks? I divested all of the ExxonMobil that I owned, and I've pulled as much as I can find and get at easily out of mutual funds um, changing mutual funds to funds that have less carbon. Did you do that for moral reasons or because you think it's a bad bet? Both. Leila Salazar-Lopez, what can an average person do listening to this radio program or podcast? What can a person do to make an impact on these issues moving away from oil? I believe in people power. I believe that all of us can take action and make change in the world. We can divest from fossil fuels. We can put solar on our houses. We can buy electric vehicles. We can take individual action and we can take global action. Greg Dalton has been talking about high-risk drilling with Lou Alstead, a former executive vice president of Mobile Oil, Danielle Fougere, president of As You Sow, Leila Salazar-Lopez, executive director of the environmental group Amazon Watch, and Renee Ortiz, former secretary general of OPEC. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.